Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As Sam said before, we're continuing our series called Letters for Lent, where we're using the lectionary epistle texts um, as our guide. And this particular text, uh, this particular letter is written by the Apostle Paul in about 55 A.D., to a small church that he had planted a few years prior in Corinth. First Corinthians 1, starting at verse 18. Listen to God's word. For the message of the cross is foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are, who, are believe, who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me give a little bit more um, historical, cultural background to what's going on here in this text. So Paul is writing to these believers in Corinth, which, as I said, was a little church plant that he had planted a few years ago uh, on one of his missionary journeys. In the first century, the city of Corinth was a fantastically interesting city. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was a very sophisticated city. It was a little bit bougie. It was kind of swanky. And the Corinthians were known all over the empire for being highly educated, highly sophisticated people. And they were very proud of their, their pedigree in Corinth. Um, and, and so this culture, let's just call it uh, this snobbish, snobbish culture, created some extra challenges for this church that was trying to grow in this city, for these Christians who lived there. Because these folks wanted to be Christians, they loved Jesus, um, they, 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 they wanted to embrace the gospel, um, but also um, it was a problem because their Christianity made them seem somewhat unsophisticated in this very, very sophisticated city. Uh-oh, that's a problem. Christianity at this time in history was not very well known. It was not a major world religion. It wasn't even, a, it was barely a minor world religion. And it was certainly not a, not a highly respected 
um, um, field of ideas or system of ideas. Being a Christian did not get you anywhere in the first century, especially in the city of Corinth. In fact, it probably held you back socially if you were a Christian. And so these Corinthian Christians, many of whom we know from the letter, many of whom were wealthy, many of whom were socially distinguished, they didn't want their Christianity to make them look silly, to make them look like backwoods rubes. And so they did some work on Christianity. They adapted it a little bit. Isn't that clever of them? They adapted Christianity just a little bit. They tweaked it to fit their social needs. And if you're interested in how that worked out for them, read the, the two letters we have to the Corinthians, okay? So they, they practiced their Christianity in ways that harmonized with their elite social status. And as they did that, they thought they were doing not only themselves, but also uh, the Christian faith some favors, right? By making the faith uh, more palatable for high culture, by making the faith a little bit more sophisticated. They were making God, the Christian God, more sophisticated, which has to be good for the church, right? To gain some, some academic and social credibility? I mean, if anybody would understand that, it's Calvinists, right? Have you ever felt the need to save the Christian faith? <laughs> to kind of rescue the Christian faith? To give even God some social credibility around here? You know what I mean? You know what that feels like to have to bail out God a little bit? So maybe you're hanging out with some friends. And maybe you're getting to know some new people, and you're in this, this new group of people, and you're pretty excited that you got invited to this little party, because if you look at the guest list, wow, not so bad, and you're on there, you're on that guest list, and that everything's going so well, and you're clicking, and you're making connections with new friends, and then as the night progresses, the conversation turns to religion. That comes up. And then and faith comes up, and the Christian faith comes up, or even worse, the church comes up. Uh-oh. And you start to sense all of these rolling eyes around you, right? And the walls start to close in around you. And you look around this group of people who you're with, and you see that, you know, some of them have really been hurt by the church. And you see some of them have very quietly, over a period of time, left the church. And some of them have left the church, and they weren't at all quiet about it. And some of them um, have never at all been religious, and they think it's kind of strange that anyone ever would be religious, because... Religion's kind of weird, right? Like, what are we, talking to a sky daddy who lives in the clouds? What are we basing uh, our entire existence on this text, which, you know, most of which was passed along orally for thousands of years and then written down by who knows who? Uh, and compiled by how many people uh, and all of these different authors and different cultures and compiled and we're like, yep, that's where we're building our life. Okay. Let's be honest, it sounds a little bit cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, a little bit. 
And so we get a little self-conscious, right? We get a little self-conscious. At least I do. And, and it's, not, it's not like people get angry or, or belligerent when they find out that you're a Christian. At least that's, that's not what I find. They don't get angry or belligerent. Almost always, it's the case that people are kind and people are respectful. But what really gets you, at least what really gets me, is that people tend to treat my faith as though it's kind of adorable to them. Like, aww, that's nice for you. Right? Here's this thing in which I've carved out room in my soul and they treat it like, I'm, like it's stamp collecting or something, right? It means everything to me. I'm, I'm building everything on this faith and it's like, isn't that, that's so wonderful that you can just avoid every scientific discovery. That's cute. And you can just, ra- you know, refuse rational thought. Good for you. Good for you. Adorable. And it feels a little condescending. And if you're like me, and you're a little bit prideful, and you like to think, hey, I'm not an idiot, you get a little bit defensive, because you don't want to be thought about as an unthinking hack. And so you're like, watch this, God, I'm going to prove to everyone just how intelligent and sophisticated we are. Look out. And that doesn't ever go well, at least it doesn't for me. You ever had that? At least that feeling where you feel like you need to go, go to bat for the church, you need to go to bat for the faith, you need to go to bat even for God. I want to, I want to say things like, listen here, pal, we're not just a bunch of backwater rubes. Have you studied Christian philosophy? Like, do you know how robust our cosmology is? Christian art, do you, it is art of the highest brow. And if you don't believe me, you can ask Augustine and Aquinas and Michelangelo and Copernicus and Beethoven and Isaac Newton and Soren Kierkegaard, and the list goes on. These guys aren't slackers. Here's what I find myself wanting to do from time to time, more often than I'd like to admit. I want to reconcile the message of Christianity with human wisdom. I want to reconcile the message of Christianity with human wisdom. I want them to be the same. I want them to be the same. And there's something to that. There is. Maybe those things can be reconciled to some degree. But, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there is one thing that will always make Christianity look foolish. The cross. It will always make Christianity look foolish. Paul says, from a, from a worldly perspective, the cross is total foolishness. In Mark chapter 24, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 14, uh, it's near the end of the story. Jesus is, is standing before the Sanhedrin. He's standing before his, his uh, crucifixion and resurrection. He's standing before the judges of the day, and he's asked to make a case for himself, make a case for himself on his own behalf. Why, Jesus? Why are you innocent of all of these charges? Tell us why you don't deserve to be crucified. Tell us why you should be set free. And you know what he says on his own behalf? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. 
which is to me astounding. Because he could have, I mean, not only the things he could have said just from a legal perspective about how he was not actually guilty of the crimes that he was accused of. Like, so like from a legal perspective, the things he could have said, but also from like a miraculous perspective, what he could have done, right? He could have transfigured himself before them as he had done before Peter and James and John. He could have changed water into wine right in front of them. He could have commanded legions of angels to come down from heaven with swords of fire that would have made Caesar quake in his boots. But he did none of that. Foolishness. He mounted no defense. He, went to the, he just went to the cross. What I'm about to say is an oversimplification, but I still think it's true. Isn't it true that every one of our cultural systems And every one of our religious systems tells us that we have to defend ourselves. We have to defend the things that we think. We have to to argue for the things that we believe. And then on top of that, more than just defend ourselves, we have to ascend. We have to ascend. We have to be successful. We have to be upwardly mobile. We have to amass more resources. We have to amass more value. We have to amass more and more anything. You name it. All worldly wisdom is an ascent to the top, but the wisdom of God in Christ is a descent to the bottom. Uh, Paul mentions uh, two groups of people in the section of the letter that we wrote, the uh, Jews and the Greeks, okay? Now know this, he's not just kind of randomly picking on two different cultures that he knows nothing about. He's choosing two cultures that he knows everything about because he was a Greek-speaking speak- Jew, okay? So Paul is talking about his people, and he's talking about his own experience. And he says in verse 22, he says um, that in their search for God, He says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. He says, those are their two ascents. Those are their ascents. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Here's what he means. The Jewish people of his time were looking for a sign because they had a history of God performing miraculous, powerful things in front of them on their behalf. And that was their cultural uh, expectation, that God would act with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and God would do this big, miraculous thing, and they would all go, there he is, I see him, we're going that direction. And so as they waited for the Messiah, they were waiting around for the guy with the biggest stick. Who can cause the most damage? Who has the most power? And so when Jesus came along, they're like, not that guy. And then the Greeks, their ascent was wisdom. And it had been this way, I mean, this is what they're known for, right? The Greeks are known for wisdom. It's who they've been for centuries. They were relentless in their pursuit of reason. And they were looking for a God who made perfect sense to them. 
and a God who they could understand and rationalize. They wanted a salvation that they could direct in their own mind. And so um, they, they wanted a God who would confirm all of their assumptions and reinforce their perspectives on the world and lead them on this path to ultimate knowledge. That's the ascent that they were looking for. Now, so the Jews looked for a sign. The Greeks looked for wisdom. We're picking on those guys. Pick on anybody else. The Corinthians, what was their ascent? They were bougie, right? They were so sophisticated. That was their ascent. They wanted to be, you know, tragically hip. They wanted to be so, so, so cool and wonderful. Modern secularism promises salvation through knowledge. That's us. Modern conservatism promises salvation through freedom. Modern American culture promises salvation through consumption. We all have our ascents. In fact, I've got more than a handful. I don't know about you. We're ascending in different ways. We're looking for salvation in different ways. The world has imagined God in lots of different ways throughout the course of history. And the one thing that our visions of God have in common is that he becomes something to ascend to. Our salvation becomes something to ascend to. Not so with Jesus. The wisdom of Jesus is foolishness to the rest of the world. Foolishness. Here are what I believe are the two most important words in the text. It's in verse uh, 22 or 23 maybe. Christ crucified. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. Here's, here's, here's the significance of this, okay? Everyone is interested in Christ. Everybody. Christ means Messiah. Christ means Savior. Christ means salvation. We're all looking for that ascent. We're all looking for that thing. I'll take a Christ. I'll take two on double coupon Tuesday. I'll take all kinds of Christ. That sounds great to me. Christ crucified? That makes no sense. How can that be? It doesn't fit. Um, Gordon Fee, a biblical scholar, says Christ crucified is a contradiction in terms. He says it's like a fried ice cube. What is that? (laughs) How can it even be? Because if you are a savior, and if you are a messiah, and if you are salvation, then you're certainly not crucified. Everyone is interested in having their own needs met and their own assumptions confirmed and their own wisdom applauded. Everyone is interested in Christ. But we preach, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles and people in 21st century America. Wow. Yikes. The wisdom of God is foolishness to us. And I think that there's something incredibly delightful about that. 
There's a theologian named Mike Reeves. Um, He says that when, when people find out that he's a pastor, that he's a theologian, very often... Um, they will say to him, like, right on the spot, like, right, outright, they'll be like, oh, I don't believe in God. Um, and he's never quite known what to do with that. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't believe in God. But now he's made it his practice that whenever someone says that, I don't believe in God, he says, oh, that's interesting. Which God don't you believe in? Des- describe for me the God that you don't believe in. And now, I don't, I'm not necessarily saying we should all do that because that takes an incredible amount of tact to navigate that conversation, okay? But isn't that a fascinating question? Oh, tell me what God you believe in. And then he says, almost invariably, almost no matter how people describe the God that they believe in, Reeves will say, uh, yeah, I don't, mm, I don't believe in that God either. Yikes. <laughs> what a terrible God. Good job not believing in that God. Isn't it, isn't it a relief? Isn't it strangely satisfying? Isn't it great news somehow that we have a God who doesn't insist we climb a ladder to him? Isn't it great news that we have a God who doesn't insist on perfection before we approach him? Isn't it Incredible news that God became as a fool in order to be with fools in their foolishness? Isn't it astounding astounding that Christ doesn't wait for the clown to get out of prison before he offers him the cleansing waters of baptism? The clown need not ascend. Because Christ has descended. Foolishness? Yeah. Grace? Yeah. God doesn't need our rescuing. I think he's as bougie as he wants to be. He's as sophisticated as he wants to be. He doesn't need our rescuing. He rescues us. That's how the story goes. He rescues us. The humble spirit, the contrite heart, the waters of baptism, the cascading grace, the cascading grace. I have some friends um, who don't necessarily call themselves Christians, but they do really understand um, the reality of this, of this radically counterintuitive foolishness of the cross. Like, they get it. They understand that. They understand Christ crucified, and they love it. Part of them hates it that they love it, but they love it. And they'll say things to me like, you know, Stefan, the message of Christianity is so ridiculous. And it is so unexpected, and it is so backwards, and it is so crazy that sometimes I wonder if it just might be true. And I love that. (laughs) I love that. It's so ridiculous and overwhelmingly gracious that 
sometimes I wonder if it might actually be true. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for meeting us in our clown suits, for finding us in our most shameful moments, not our most sophisticated ones, for introducing yourself to us when we needed you most, not when we thought we needed you the least. We thank you for the perpetually humbling message of your gospel. Help us to embrace the identity that you've given us, as beloved children of God. We thank you for who you are and what you've done and for the impact that you're continuing to have on us and the entire world. In your name we pray, amen.